I want to take the time today to show you in the New Testament what church discipline is, why we practice it, and how we actually go about it, how we practice it. It is an important practice for the church. It is much neglected in our day by many churches, and I realize that some of you here this morning have probably had bad experiences with what was called church discipline in another church setting. You may have seen that practice abused, used wrongfully. You may have witnessed it done poorly. I'm would guess, I'm guessing that most of you probably have never witnessed it. There are a good number of you have never seen it. This is going to be something entirely new. But this doesn't absolve us, even if there's bad experiences with it or some churches fail to, to practice it. These don't absolve us from the Bible's commands for us to do so, to pursue it. So first of all, what is church discipline? What is it? Well, in a general sense, church discipline is simply the confrontation of sin. It is simply the confrontation of sin. It is addressing the presence of sin among the church. So we would use discipline as its most basic meaning, and that is training And you'll notice that discipline and disciple have the same root word. They both have to do with being trained, being taught, learning. In essence, that's what discipline is. Discipline is not, a lot of times we use it as the term for consequences, for wrongdoing, punishment. But discipline really is the training of somebody for something. And so discipline, then, is really the dealing with sin within the church body. The New Testament makes it clear that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, will have to deal with sin in our midst, within the community of faith. Beyond struggling with our own sin, I mean that living in a community of faith means that we will be confronted with one another's sins. That may be sins against ourselves. It may just be sin in general, moral failure. We will be confronted with other people's failures as well as our own. How are we to respond to that? How do we walk together as Crossway Fellowship when we see somebody in sin? And again, this is at the most broadest level That could be everything from seeing somebody blow it to seeing somebody who's in a pattern of sin, whatever it might be. Do we have a responsibility to one another? Listen to some instructions in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, teaching and admonishing one another. That word admonishing has to do with correcting. 
It has to do with saying, hey, that's wrong. That's not okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So here is a call to the church to meet one another where the various members of our church family are in their life. Someone might be weak. They might be really struggling. You need to come alongside them. They might be faint-hearted. They might need you to come along and bolster them up with courage. And they might be idle. The word is a tactos, out of line. It was a word that was used to describe a soldier who was out of formation, against orders. Sometimes... Even our brothers and sisters in Christ become attack tossed. They become out of line. They need admonishment. We need admonishment. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This being caught in a transgression doesn't mean being discovered or found out. Ha, I caught you. It means being trapped and snared. You're walking down the path of life, and a brother or sister in Christ has their foot in a bear trap. That's the idea. You find them caught, trapped by a sin. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Remember, you too are temptable. Keep watch on your own soul. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. As you can see, James just uses different terminology. This wandering being caught in a transgression, being out of line. So admonish, go and pursue, restore, bring back. These are all terms that are given to the church body as a whole. And what do they tell us about walking together? Well, first of all, sin is inevitable. Glory has not come yet. Sin is inevitable. All are susceptible to temptation. No one is immune to being deceived. Secondly, all believers are called by God to admonish, to call one another to holiness, to confront, and to restore. This is, these are not commands only to elders, pastors, Church leaders, well, certainly church leadership is commanded to correct and reprove and rebuke and remind and teach and exhort, but these passages show that everyone in the church bears responsibility for administering and restoring. The reformers emphasized the priesthood of all believers 
the end of the priesthood. And they, of course, were pushing back against the Roman Catholic doctrine that Christians needed priests to still mediate between them and God to receive confessions of sin. And so when they talked about the priesthood of believers, they were saying that all of us have access to God. But that truth applies also to our accountability to one another. These passages, of course, all speak to individual dealing with sin, not necessarily corporate action on part of the church. In other words, these verses, and there are others like them, describe interactions relationships between various members of the body that are not necessarily public. It might be one-on-one. It might be a small group of, of people. It might be guys in your Bible study or prayer group. It might be ladies that you study Scripture with or reading a book with, whatever it is. They describe the ongoing life of the community As we come alongside each other and struggle with sin, encourage one another, pray for one another. But there is another category of responding to sin in the church. And this is public, corporate discipline. And this is what we usually mean when we talk about church discipline. We don't usually use those terms for what I've just talked about, these interactions in life in the body. This kind of discipline we could define as this. Church discipline is the church together, excluding from fellowship with God's people, someone who claims to be a Christian but persists in blatant public sin. Church discipline is the church together, Excluding from fellowship with God's people, someone who claims to be a Christian, names the name of Christ, claims to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, but persists in blatant and public sin. Let me give you some key portions of Scripture. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is protection. This is to ensure integrity, perspective. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, an outsider. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Jesus is talking about an authority to the church body the church body exercising an authority within the lives of Jesus' people. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. 
Now, let me just make a comment, a few comments about this. First of all, these last couple of verses are not talking about how many people you need to gather in prayer for God to hear your cries. We use that a lot. We want to get together, we want to pray, hey, when two or three are gathered, right? That's not what this verse is talking about. We want to pray together, okay? Small groups, big groups. We want to pray individually in our closets, Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. But this is talking about when there is a witness of two or three gathered in Jesus' name to identify someone who will not repent of an offense of sin against a fellow brother or sister in Christ, Jesus is authorizing the church to exercise his authority. That's what he's talking about. Also, this is not a blueprint for any and every case of church discipline. Matthew 18 lays out a process, doesn't it? But it is regarding, in a specific context, a type of situation that requires the church body to corporately remove someone. And it is a situation of personal offense. Matthew 18 is frequently referred to as the process of discipline, but it is not a process, a blueprint for every case of church discipline. It's about a personal offense. And you can see the process, right? First, go to somebody individually. And by the way, offense here is not, hey, you got your feelings hurt. The offense here is you have been wronged by somebody. Maybe you've been cheated by somebody. Maybe you've been gossiped about by somebody within the church body. Maybe someone has roped you into a business deal that's ended up breaking your bank. Whatever it is, they've harmed you in some way. There's an offense. First of all, you go to that person individually. If they refuse to, you get a witness, a second or and or a third person, and you go to them. There's a process of appealing to the person. Then it goes before the church. Now, how many churches practice this? Not many. We need to. This is Jesus' outline for in this kind of case to protect the church to deal with sin and offense in the body secondly this is not a due process for a sinner to hide behind i can't tell you more than once i've i've heard someone confronted with something a sin or something along that line, only to have them defend themselves and reply, oh, you know what? Nope, sorry. I'm not going to meet with you. I'm not going to talk with you because you didn't follow Matthew 18. You guys have talked about this and nobody came to me individually. As if, as if they're immune from accountability because there's some evidence inadmissible in court or due process wasn't followed Something like that. Matthew 18 is not a universal procedure for any and every dealing with sin. Every sin does not require a step one, individual, step two, confrontation, step three. Now, coming to somebody and confronting sin ought to be done in steps, 
in steps of appeal. We're going to see some other passages here, though, where that isn't the case. There are some sins that, that require immediate rebuke. So just because a couple of elders have discussed where somebody is spiritually and that they're living in sin doesn't mean the person now can't be confronted because one elder didn't go to them individually. Do you see what I'm getting at? That's not what Matthew 18 is. And a good example is our next passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Probably the clearest and most important passage regarding dealing with sin in the body of Christ, corporately as a body. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I want to pause right here. Understand that Paul's goal is redemptive. It's redemptive. It is not punishment for punishment's sake. It is not vindictive. It is redemptive. Handing over to Satan means to put someone outside the protection, the guidance, and the love of God's people. The kind of love that we share with each other. There is a kind of love that we have for the world, that we have for everybody. But there's also a kind of love that we have, a fellowship of love within the body of Christ that is not shared by people outside of the body of Christ. That's what he means by handing over to Satan. It's Satan's realm outside of the church. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So when the leaven is cleaned out, removed, it's to be done with sincerity and truth, not with malice and evil. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb who's already been sacrificed. Verse 9, and here's the portion of this passage I really want to highlight. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Thank you, Paul. Because we would have to cloister ourselves out in the middle of nowhere to separate ourselves from the world, those who are unbelievers. Paul isn't concerned here, and he's going to go on and make this clear. He's not concerned here 
with unbelievers doing what unbelievers do, sinning, rebelling against God, but he is concerned about believers doing it. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Why? Why eating? Because in eating and sharing a meal, there is fellowship. You ever wonder why there's so much food at church? This is part of the reason. Believe it or not, there is actually a biblical, theological, underlying argument for food, sharing meals. It's part of human existence. It has to do with getting at how God created us as human beings and part of the purpose of food. We share. There's a certain level of intimacy there. There's a certain level of sharing. You know where this is really illustrated is at the Last Supper. When Jesus is sitting there with his disciples, and he talks about, you remember he says, whoever dips the bread with me, and it's Judas Iscariot, and Jesus saying, whoever does this will be the one who betrays me. Jesus was pointing out that this most intimate friendship, fellowship kind of act, sharing the bread in the same dip was an act of intimacy that, that highlighted the level of duplicity and deceit and betrayal on Judas's part. That's what Paul means when he says not to even eat with such a one. Verse 12, For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? How about that? Here is an actually a command that we are to judge. We are to render a verdict when it comes to sin. When we are looking at Scripture and the Bible says this is sin, this is immorality. To say you're living in immorality is not judging somebody or it is judging somebody in the right way. That is not a wrong kind of judgment. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's pretty unequivocal, isn't it? It's pretty clear. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. Find another context, another example. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And when he talks about this tradition, he's talking about a body of teaching that included doctrine and instruction of how to live. So not in accordance with the tradition has to do with belief, content, and also walk, behavior. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul is saying, when we were with you, we set an example in how we worked. We could have, within our right, asked for monetary support for our mission 
and you would have given it, but we intentionally set that right aside so that we could exemplify for you what it means to work hard and a certain level of independence take care of ourselves. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. In other words, in routine, without making a stir, without without nagging at other people, mooching is really what he's talking about here. Without mooching off of each other. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Hmm. Just for mooching? Life of laziness and idleness and taking advantage of brothers and sisters within the body and their generosity? Yes, if they will not follow, if they will not change. And we're not talking about somebody who's really in need, unemployed, trying to get a job, has a health problem, and they need support. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about someone who's manipulating and mooching. What is the doing good of verse 13? It's what follows, having nothing to do with someone who is lazy, idle, and mooching. That's the doing of good. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Another context, another example. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Self-condemned because this person persists in doing this even though they're warned. Can you see? Here's another process though, isn't there? But it's not the Matthew 18 process. It doesn't say anything about an individual and then two or three. It just says, warn him once. Who? Whomever. Warn him once. Warn him twice. And if... He persists in stirring up division, have nothing more to do with him. So someone who is quarrelsome, someone who is divisive, someone who is always trying to stir up controversy has to be removed if they won't stop. So these are all significant passages addressing the need to remove a person who persists in sin like this. So you can imagine that the practice of church discipline is not very popular. It's not very popular, especially when, quote, unquote, loving someone is often defined as not offending someone. When the essence of love is equated with tolerating a person's views and attitudes and actions, regardless of what they are, whether they're right or wrong never challenging them, 
This is probably the reason it is neglected in so many churches, because it's actually avoided. And it's painful to do. It's hard to do. But church discipline is right. It's necessary. And it's good. It's God's instruction. And it's not vindictive. It's not punitive for punishment. It is redemptive. The goal is always to redeem. It is always to restore. That's what we're after. Which brings us to the why. Brings us to the why. What's at stake here? I'm going to give you, in summary, four goals of practicing church discipline. Four goals for practicing church discipline. First of all, church discipline is for the good of the offender. Church discipline is for the good of the offender. Now, don't we as parents, those of us who are parents, discipline our children to keep them from harm? Yeah, we know that. In fact, if we don't inflict pain or discomfort or frustration as a consequence to teach them to avoid things that will injure or kill them, we'd say that's failure as a parent. That's not discipline. That's not training. Like playing with electrical outlets, running into traffic, playing with curling irons. Those are the kinds of things we say no, and, and if they persist, they receive a consequence to teach them that will bring them harm. Every good parent does that. How much more should we be concerned for someone's soul? Their eternity. Isn't a person's spiritual condition even more important than the physical? Yeah, ultimately it is. Is it that we just don't take sin seriously enough? Would we rather be comfortable even though it costs someone their spiritual welfare and, again, maybe their eternity? Because they think they're something they aren't? Because they've assumed they're a Christian? We practice church discipline for the good of the offender in hope that corporately calling them to account will wake them up. That corporately calling them to account will alert them to their spiritual state. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, deliver this person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You almost have to hope they lose everything and become desperate, desperate enough to return. So we, we practice church discipline for the good of the offender. Secondly, we practice church discipline for the good of the church for the good of the church. One of the points that Paul makes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 was, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. The leaven here is sin. And what Paul was saying is not that if you don't expel the moral person, other people will start committing sexual immorality necessarily. 
but that if you don't deal with sin, in this case sexual immorality, by removing the person, but instead tolerate it, sin and the toleration of sin will spread like leaven in the church. The process of church discipline provides the church with a warning of the danger and the deceitfulness of sin. This is why in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, Paul commands that an elder who persists, an elder who persists in some particular serious sin is to be rebuked, quote, in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Again, it's not really a Matthew 18 process there, is it? For an elder, it's a public rebuke. So we practice corporate discipline for the health of the church body. And the highest mark of health for a local church body is holiness. It's holiness. Thirdly, we practice church discipline for the witness of the church, for the good of the world. We practice church discipline for the good of the world, which is the church's witness. See, at stake is the testimony of God's people, the church. How can we call the world to forsake sin and embrace the gospel that Jesus saves from sin, delivers us from judgment, and is Lord of all if sin within the church goes unchallenged? What it leads to is an understanding in the world that they must not take that sin thing too seriously if their members can live like that. And really, my lifestyle isn't that bad anyway. It's just fine. And we actually vindicate the world's accusation that we are hypocrites. Hypocrisy is not calling out sin even removing someone from fellowship. Hypocrisy is claiming to be holy, to be close to God, to walk with God, to be a transformed people in the process of becoming like Him and then say nothing about public sin that everybody knows about. That's hypocrisy. If we just ignore persistent, public, sinful behavior. We might want to communicate, you need to turn from sin and be forgiven and love Christ and follow him. But what they hear is, sin doesn't really matter. God doesn't really care. And becoming a Christian doesn't change anything and doesn't need to. So the church's testimony is at stake. Fourthly, we practice church discipline for the glory of God. For the glory of God. God is holy, and as his people redeemed by him, bought with the blood of Christ, set apart to him, we are to reflect the glory of his holiness. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 Peter 1, 15 but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Who we are informs the world's picture of God. And when we, his people, tolerate public, persistent sin among us, we grossly 
misrepresent him to the world. When we turn a blind eye to ongoing sin, we obscure his glory. The sinner cannot see redemption. The broken cannot find the solace of forgiveness. The blind cannot see the light or the fear of God. And so if we would call people to God's light, call people to God's glory, call people to God's grace, his power, his love, his presence, then we must be willing to deal with sin as his people. All right, so talked about what church discipline is, why we practice it, how do we practice it? How do we actually go about doing this? Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand who qualifies for this because we all wrestle with sin. If you're like me, I mean, I've spent all week thinking through this. You start, you start going, Man, where's my life? Where's my heart? Is my behavior matching up with my claim? And that's the purpose. That's one of the, the blessings of having to do this. We all wrestle with temptation as sin. Listen, the person who qualifies for church discipline is a claiming believer who willfully persists in sin that is blatant and public and refuses to repent. Okay, so this is someone who persists. This is ongoing. It's not just a one-time struggle. It's sin that is blatant. It's clear and it's obvious. It's sin that is public. It's not private or personal. And it's something they refuse to change or repent from. So there's a certain hardness of heart. So this is not just sin. This is not someone who's frustrated with sin, struggling through sin, in this cycle of falling into sin and temptation, struggling with it, repenting, being brokenhearted, growing some, falling again. That's not what this is. This is for someone who says, I'm not in sin. I'm not listening to you. I'm not changing my life. So some examples of these kinds of sins might be pursuing sexual immorality, an affair, sexual promiscuity, abandoning a marriage, divisiveness and dissension, stirring up arguments, the teaching of false doctrine, teaching things contrary to scripture, a lack of Financial integrity, stealing, manipulating, and using. We saw in 2 Thessalonians, laziness, idleness. These are some examples. It's not an exhaustive list. But those are the kinds of things we're talking about. So what, how do we do it then? Well, I'm just going to sum it up in one word, and it's disassociation. I'm using that word to summarize what all of these passages we've just talked about, have been talking about, keep away from Purge, cleanse, remove. This is removing from fellowship. Someone who is under church discipline is not welcome to participate in the life of the church, nor maintain close relationships with the people of the church. Those kinds of relationships that believers have with other believers. It's not unbelievers. So if someone who's been a part of Crossway Fellowship, says, you know what, I'm not a Christian. 
I know I've come to church for years. I know I've gone to Bible studies, and I'm married to a believer there and so on, but I, I'm not a Christian. I don't, I'm not even sure God exists. And they walk away from the church. It's not church discipline. Church discipline is not for someone who says, I don't belong to Christ. It's for someone who's living duplicitously, who says, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, and I'm living like this. That's what church discipline is for. Someone who continues to live in open sin still claims the name of Christ. This is not hateful. It's not mean-spirited. It's not slanderous. We're not name-calling. We're not out to insult or tear someone down. We still love this person. Okay, We care about them. We care about their soul. But it means not being chummy-chummy. It means not having meals together. I don't mean eating in the same restaurant. I mean sitting down over a meal and sharing, breaking out life. It means not pursuing life together. Any conversation, contact with this person really should be focused on their need to repent, their need to return to Christ. A reminder, hey, you cannot call yourself a Christian and live like that. If the church does not, we short-circuit God's intended process for conviction and restoration. Listen, we don't help the Holy Spirit by being indulgent of someone's sinful lifestyle or sweeping it under the rug. And this is not shunning Some of you are familiar with that term, and some of you maybe have witnessed churches that have shunned people, where someone is ignored, vilified, glared at, sent hate mail. We don't do that. Our goal is still restoration. It's still restoration. What we really want is we want a person who is persisting in sin, refusing to repent, but still naming the name of Christ. We want them to feel alone and in need of Christ and the warmth of fellowship with his people. Removing someone from fellowship is really an act of faith. And here's why. We have to trust that the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing in somebody's life, even if it's painful and it's hard. Let me pray for us. Lord, these are hard things for us. And I pray that for those who have never even witnessed church discipline, a public act like this, Lord, that you would, you would be gracious, that you would affirm your word in their hearts through your spirit. Lord, that you would enable us to, first of all, look into our own hearts and to before you cry out with David in Psalm 139, search my heart and see if there be any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And that we would also, that we would also be enabled to hate sin as you hated sin. To have such a zeal for your glory and your holiness that we would do what is right as a church. 
And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to being your people. We are grateful this morning. We thank you for your great grace toward us, your power that enables us to follow you. Lord, your ongoing forgiveness and cleansing because of the cross. As we struggle with sin, as we repent, as we come back to you day after day, ask for your guidance and your protection. Lord, give us the the resolve, the strength, the tenacity to resist sin, to love you, to prize you, to worship you, hold you high in our hearts as the the precious and one true Lord that you are. In your name we ask these things, and for these reasons aim our lives and our worship and our songs and our prayers toward you. Amen.